Okay, last week we uh, finished the Abrahamic Covenant. I want to make just a couple announcements. One is I'm going to turn the class back over to Rick next week uh, for several reasons. One, I've had the class four weeks and I don't want to hijack it, which I could easily do. Plus, I'm going to be gone next week, Lord willing. So this will be a great time to save way back to Rick in Genesis. Plus, there'll be a day or two coming down the road when Rick won't be here and I already have this material and information ready so when he calls me, even on a moment's notice. I'll be ready. And I wanted to save at least one full Sunday for the new covenant because that is the fulfillment of all the covenants in one. And it's worthy of at least one lesson, maybe more. So we will do that. So Rick will be starting back in chapter 12? 13. 13. Yes, it's 13 next week. We're going to go that route. Uh, I did want to bring up one thing today that I forgot to mention last week in regards to the Abrahamic Covenant. I think it's very, very important. And I'm sure Rick will really delve this out when he gets into the progress of Genesis. But that is this. When was Abraham circumcised in relation to his receiving the covenant? When was Abraham circumcised in his relation to receiving the Abrahamic Covenant? After he got the covenant? Exactly. Afterwards. Why is that important? Is it, or is it important? Maybe it's not important. Didn't earn it. What? He didn't earn it. He didn't earn it, did he? He didn't earn it. So a couple things to remember. First of all, Abraham was not a Jew. He was a pagan Gentile. Abraham was a pagan Gentile. He was called by God, received the covenant, and it was later that he was circumcised. That's a massive, important point. So I want us to turn to Romans chapter 4. Because it says in the Abrahamic covenant that in Abraham all nations, that's all tribes, tongues, ethnicities, languages, would be blessed. And that, of course fulfillment in the new covenant but Abraham was not circumcised when he received the covenant he was an uncircumcised Gentile at that time let's turn to Romans chapter 4 because this is huge it's a huge part of the Abrahamic covenant and it's why we are sitting here today as redeemed (coughs) believers and let's look at verse 9 Verse 9. <clears throat> and this is talking about the blessedness of being justified by faith. For in verse 3, exhibit A for Paul's uh, proof text, who are justified by faith. In verse 3, Paul quotes Genesis 15:6. That verse I told you you need to know, have marked, and be very familiar with it. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so we move over to verse 9. This is what it says. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? That is a massive question that Paul asks, especially for the time in which he was writing this. That's no less important today. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? 
while he was circumcised or uncircumcised. And you just have to love Paul's argumentation. He asks great questions and then supplies the answer. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So even clear back in Genesis, God made it obvious that both the circumcised and the uncircumcised, both the Jews and the Gentiles, were going to be part of the Abrahamic covenant and part of the family of God and part of the family of faith. <clears throat> so a massive part of the Abrahamic covenant was that Abraham received the covenant while he was still uncircumcised. That was huge. I wanted to make sure we didn't miss that point. So today we're going to move into the Mosaic Covenant. And so when you think about the Mosaic Covenant, what thoughts come to mind? What thoughts, visions, just Mosaic Covenant, words, tell me. Just speak. Don't think too deeply, just law. Law. I knew that would be the first thing. My guess, I was thinking about this. What would be the first thing said if I had a bet to them in Vegas? I'd bet the law. Exactly. The first thing you think of it is law. Okay? What else do you think of? Faith. Faith? Okay. A lot of sacrifices. A lot of sacrifices. Like how many? That's all we got doing, right? Thousands upon thousands. Every morning and every evening. Just every day, morning and evening. Every day, morning and evening. That doesn't include all the sacrifices for all the other different uh, events and weeks and ceremonies that they had. Massive thousands upon thousands. The sheep herders were guaranteed employment, weren't they? For sure. Moses' face glowing with reflecting God's glory. Exactly. Moses' face glowing, reflecting God's glory. So much he had to bail. Is that right? Maybe. What other visions come to mind? <coughs> I think of theocracy. Theocracy? Absolutely. God is their king, God is their ruler, and one nation under God, actually. I know that was our motto. I'm not sure it still is, but it was actually true for Israel, one nation under God. The opposite. On the negative side, Israelites' unfaithfulness and their idolatry. Okay. Definitely. Definitely. What about the smoking mountain, the lightning flashing, the earthquake? Absolute terror. I mean, it was absolute abject terror. The people were terrified. <clears throat> Anything else you think of? Mosaic. The law. Is it a covenant you're really in love with? 
<laughs> when you think of the Mosaic Covenant, is that something just endears love and you cherish it? For a fallen people, it was a lousy covenant. For if, if the people could have been righteous, it would have been fine. Been fine. It was against everything our human nature is, right? Unachievable. Unachievable. Hopeless. Unachievable. For a purpose, though. So when I think about that, I think about 2 Corinthians 3 6, I believe it is, where Paul Wright wrote, The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And there he's writing about him being a minister of the new covenant. And he couldn't be more right, because the law is the letter, and it kills. There's no life in the law. But the Spirit, the new covenant, gives life. <clears throat> so I think of the law, I think of death. Massive death. And that was actually visually uh, demonstrated by the thousands upon thousands and millions of sacrifices. Death. Sin leads to death. Massive demonstration. <coughs> Something else I think that I'm surprised somebody hasn't said is holiness. We think of the Mosaic Covenant. One of the first things that should come to our mind is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Several ways. One is he was so holy they couldn't even approach the mountain or they would have been killed. Beast or human. <clears throat> the holiness of God is so majestic that the Israelites, including Moses, cowered in fear. Cowered in fear. Totally different than the new covenant which we'll see later. So let's turn in our Bibles to <clears throat> Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. <clears throat> and so if I can volunteer this morning to read verses 1 through 8 in Exodus chapter 19. So let's get to seeing Israel's at Mount Sinai now. <clears throat> They're at Mount Sinai. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've come to Mount Sinai. And remember, if you go way back before all the plagues and everything, Moses had asked for several days, Pharaoh for several days for them to travel in the wilderness to worship God. And so now they've got there. They're at Mount Sinai to worship God. And I really think that even Moses and for certain the average Israelite had no idea what was awaiting them when they come to worship God. They had no idea. They, I mean, I'm sure they were stunned. They were stunned at this event, Mount Sinai. Okay, so someone volunteer to read verses 1 through 8, chapter 19. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They, they set out from Rephidim, and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. 
for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. <coughs> all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses re reported the words of the people to the Lord. <clears throat> okay, a couple things here. Uh, you might have you might have noticed uh, verses five and six. Peter quotes First Peter chapter two, verse nine. So that's an interesting, just an interesting connection because that which God told Moses, Peter quotes, writing to the believers in First Peter some if not many of whom were Gentiles so you can see the Abrahamic covenant in effect that even this promise about being a special people of the earth a kingdom of priests and a holy nation we are as believers today because of the new covenant so you can see how these covenants are working together to write history and to bring about God's eternal plan okay is this covenant conditional or unconditional? Does it say conditional or unconditional? Conditional. Conditional. And how do you know that? If. If. It's exactly right. It's a big little word, isn't it? If. So this is a conditional covenant. And of all the covenants we have over here, it's the only conditional covenant. It's the only one that is conditional. Does anyone know what the sign of the covenant is? What is the sign of the Mosaic covenant? <coughs> it's not circumcision because that's a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Is, is it fire? The tablets? Is it fire? The tablets? <laughs> Okay, it's a blood covenant, which we're going to get to in a little bit. That's not the sign of the covenant. What is the sign of the Mosaic covenant? Is it what he did to the Egyptians? No. Nope. What he did? What's that? The Ark of the Covenant? No. Eagles wings? What's that? Eagles? No. Good guesses. Okay, let's go to Exodus 31. Exodus 31. I think it's going to surprise us, actually. Maybe not. <coughs> Exodus 31, 16 and 17. Someone read those verses. Sabbath. The Israelites must keep the Sabbath, celebrating it as a permanent covenant for the generations to come. This is a sign between me and the Israelites forever, or forever. For in the six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Okay, the sign of the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a sign of the Mosaic covenant. <coughs> Okay, so the Mosaic Covenant is a blood covenant, as Joe mentioned just a little bit ago. So let's take a look at that because I think that's important. Uh, let's go to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 
Exodus chapter 24. The interesting thing about the Mosaic Covenant is a massively extensive covenant that's very narrowly focused. It's focused on the nation of Israel. So you think about the Mosaic Covenant, it was not given to any other nation. It was just given to Israel, but it's a very extensive covenant and covers a lot of chapters in the Bible. So if I can have a volunteer read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from far. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the, word, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed feast offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay, thank you, Rick. So the Mosaic covenant is a blood covenant. For sacrifices made, and the blood was sprinkled on the altar, it was sprinkled on the book of the covenant, and it was sprinkled on the people. So it was a blood covenant. So as we look at the Mosaic covenant, it was bilateral, involved both God and Israel. It was conditional if they obeyed, and it was nullifiable being contingent on Israel's obedience to God. So taking a look at the Mosaic Covenant, how many commandments were in this covenant? How many commandments were in this covenant? What's that? So this is a trick question. No, it's not a trick question. (laughs) It's a stunning answer. 526? No. That's low. 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 So I got a question. Did you allow someone to sprinkle blood on you if you had to keep six hundred and thirty commandments? <laughs> you had to keep six hundred and thirteen commandments. But you partake of that blood, Kevin. How do you remember? Of course. You what? How do you remember them all? 
<laughs> well, they're in the book. They're in the book of the covenant. You can go find it. But where else could they go? Did, did, did That's probably not a fair question. I'm just thinking. I mean, just think. If you covenanted to keep 613 commandments, that's quite a, that's quite a promise to make. Anyway, I think Especially that... when you have to keep them all. When you have to keep them all. Or you break the covenant. Did we God give them all the covenants, or did the, um, like, don't want to say the priests or the Pharisees add to that? Uh, God gave them 613 commandments, but the priests and Pharisees, or the Pharisees added to yeah, the, that later on. Yeah, okay. They made it even more burdensome than 613. Okay. I'm not sure. Maybe somebody knows how many they added. It was a lot. It was a lot. It was absolutely burdensome. Was it hopeless? Some kind of clothing where they actually had 613 knots tied in their strings or hanging from the rope that I can't symbolize that. I, I, I don't know. know. Does anybody know the answer to that question? Not, I'm not aware of that. Not saying it's not, I'm just not aware of it. <laughs> Six hundred and thirteen commandments. Of which really the Ten Commandments are a summation. So God really took those six hundred and thirteen and really focused it down on here's ten that really summarize the entire of the six hundred and thirteen. But all those commandments were given to govern the life and conduct of Israel as a distinct nation. Uh, their worship system, their social life. Uh, all their interactions, moral, civil, um, just everything about them, and it was to set them apart as a distinct nation among the people. A distinct nation. They would be separate, identifiable, pure, and holy before their God. And so God took this nation and placed it in Canaan, which was geographically strategic it's the most strategic spot in the world at that particular time and they were to be missionaries for God as a distinct pure holy nation to all the nations of the world and obviously uh, they failed they failed that miserably is there a means of salvation in the Mosaic Covenant Is there a means of salvation in the Mosaic Covenant? No. You can't be saved by the blood. That's exactly right. <coughs> there is no means of salvation in the Mosaic Covenant. None. So a big reason, a big part of the Mosaic Covenant was to show people a need for a Savior. That it was hopeless for a human being to keep the holiness of God, to keep every holy standard of God was impossible. The blood of bulls and goats can never forgive sin. And so for about 1,400 years, God demonstrated the hopelessness of salvation by works. About 1,400 years. Absolute hopelessness of salvation by works. So the biblical record shows that Israel disobeyed God and face the curses of the covenant. And we're not going to get into that <clears throat> because that would take quite a while to, to go through. 
what, what was one important reason that the law was given as revealed in the New Testament? One of the most important reasons the law was given as revealed in the New Testament was what? Sin. Sin. To bring about the knowledge of sin. <coughs> to bring about the knowledge of sin. Let's look at those quick. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. <coughs> Verse 20. Maybe somebody has that by memory. Romans 3.20. Someone read that for us, please. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, so how do we know sin is sin? The law. The law. That's why the preaching of the law is so important today. For people to have a knowledge of sin, they have to be aware of the law of God. If they're not aware of the law of God, they don't have the knowledge of sin, except for what's, the same law is written on their heart. But the conscience can really bury that. So by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now let's turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> Verses 23 through 25. Let's start at verse 22. Chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Okay, so... Verses 24 and 5, therefore the law was our guardian or tutor. Uh, <clears throat> someone else's reference say something else? Put in charge of. Put in charge of. Schoolmaster. Anybody say schoolmaster? Okay, the law was our tutor, instructor, our guardian. So I'm not going to get into this because it's pretty extensive, but back in those times, uh, young children were given over to a tutor or a schoolmaster or instructor or guardian until they reached the age of adulthood which in the Jewish tradition would have been probably 12 about 12 at which time they would have been set free from that and they've reached adulthood and they've been on their own but during that time they were being instructed by the schoolmaster or tutor or guardian and so the law really is our schoolmaster or our instructor to bring us to Christ is what gives us the knowledge of sin and that we must come to Christ. So the Mosaic Covenant, even though it's not in effect today, is extremely important because it is the law that brings about the knowledge of sin and that we have a need for a Savior. So God promised then that the Mosaic Covenant would be superseded by a better new covenant. And the end of the Mosaic Covenant as a rule of life occurred when? When did the end of the Mosaic Covenant 
for the nation of Israel as a rule of life occur? <coughs> when the veil was torn in two, when Christ was resurrected, it is finished. Okay, I would, I would say there are two dates. One is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ brought about the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant and brought about its end. But it was still practiced after that until when? Up to the temple destroyed. When was that? 70 AD. What happened in 70 AD? The temple was destroyed by the Romans. Titus. Yeah. Arson in Jerusalem, they destroyed it. Absolutely, totally destroyed it. Not only destroyed the temple, they destroyed all <clears throat> records. So Judaism, as it had been known for 1,400 years, was gone. It was gone. It was over. That was it. Uh, just incredible. It has not been practiced as it was practiced up until AD 70 since. Sense. destroyed all the priestly records they destroyed everything it came to an end and so the end of the Mosaic Covenant as a rule of life occurred with the death of Jesus Christ because he fulfilled the demands of the covenant and he established a new covenant with his blood and so I want us to spend just a little time looking at that let's go to Luke chapter 22 it's all over the New Testament uh, we hear it a lot, and I think at times maybe we're not thinking about that a lot. Uh, Luke chapter 22, the scripture is often used at communion, and Jesus is with the disciples in the upper room, and I want us to look at verses 19 and 20. If someone can read those two verses, please. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Here shortly, we're going to participate in communion. You're going to take the cup. That cup is the new covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ. Right here. This is a fulfillment of all the previous covenants. You're going to actively participate, actually physically participate in the new covenant today. We take communion. And by doing that, you're part of the fulfillment of all of those covenants all wrapped up in Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. So what we do when we take communion is a actually a momentous event. It's a massive event. It's not just some formality or some ritual that we do every Sunday. It's something that God oathed, swore, and covenanted thousands of years ago that we are demonstrating today in communion when we partake of the blood of Jesus Christ cup of the new covenant let's go to Romans chapter 10 
And I'm just trying to give you an appreciation for the importance of these covenants because where we are at today is a result of God's working out these covenants that he has made in past history. Romans 10, 4. Would someone read that for us, please? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay. Christ is the end of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. Christ fulfilled the law for everyone who believes. The Mosaic Covenant was obeyed perfectly by Jesus Christ, and His righteousness is imputed or accounted to your account. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can actually say truthfully with a straight face, I have fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant. I have kept those 613 laws by imputation. That's incredible. That's incredible. Just saying those Jews for 1,400 years were never able to say that. Although true believers under that system look forward to the day when Jesus Christ would come. We look back. They look forward. Amazing. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 14 through 18, if someone would read those, please. Ephesians chapter 2, 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. For by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. <clears throat> so here we see that Christ is reconciled, circumcised and uncircumcised. Jew and Gentile, who for thousands of years, or hundreds of years, have been separated by circumcision and uncircumcision. He now has broken down that middle wall of separation, he abolished that enmity in his flesh, the law of commandments. That's the Mosaic covenant contained in ordinance. Two, as to create himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That he can reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Uh, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. And Hebrews chapter 8 really is a, um, a chapter about 
a lot about the new covenant, a better covenant. And the book of Hebrews is really a book about the exaltation of Jesus Christ and why he is better than Moses, why he's better than angels, why he's better than the law. Hebrews is about why the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And he really comes down and talks a lot about the new covenant in chapter 8. And if we look at verse 13... Someone read that, please. Verse 13 in chapter 8. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is old, and what is old and aging is about to disappear. <clears throat> okay, old and aging and about to disappear. Uh, my translation says he has made the first obsolete. Now what is obsolete and growing old is about to vanish away. So we have this new covenant... So what has happened? What has happened to the Mosaic covenant according to the Bible? What has happened? It's obsolete. It's obsolete. It's obsolete. But does that mean it has no value or importance? No. It means it's been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled. There's no need for it now in that sense. That actually happened then in AD seventy. It vanished. It was gone. I think it's important for us to know that Romans 7, 12 says the law is holy, righteous, and good. The law is holy, righteous, and good. That's a New Testament Paul writing, chapter 7. And it is. The law is uh, necessary today so that we can preach the law so people can have the knowledge of sin and come to Christ. We have a question. Yeah. Is those who don't confess Christ, are they still held to the standard, God's standard under the law? Yes. The reason I can say that is, is probably a couple fold. One is nine of the ten commandments are restated in the New Testament. So nine of the ten commandments are part of the new covenant. Number one. Number two, the law is written on the heart of every human being. So even if they didn't have the written law, they have the law written on their heart. Okay? Yeah, no, go ahead. You say nine are stated. Are you, are you saying the tenth that's not stated would be the Sabbath? Yes. But that is also free law because God rests on the seventh day. How does that play into and we talk about this later too. Right. So. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Uh, because the Sabbath is specifically included in the ten. Correct. Okay, and it is not specifically restated in the New Testament. Okay. Nine of those ten are specifically restated, commanded in the New Testament. <clears throat> the Sabbath, which was pre-law but was made law. It wasn't law before the law. Sure. It wasn't law until the law. God rested, and men were supposed to follow that example, but it had not been codified before the law was given. So the Sabbath was codified at Mount Sinai. Is there any way that's not permanent? Because one of the scriptures we read said it was a permanent part of the covenant. So well, the Sabbath was part of the Mosaic Covenant, but the Mosaic Covenant is now obsolete. 
and it's vanished. So because the permit was, it, so it was only permanent through the Mosaic Covenant? The Sabbath? Yeah. I can't remember which scripture you used that used the word permanent in it. Oh, yeah, the Sabbath is a permanent, probably, I'd have to go back and look, but it's probably a permanent sign of the covenant, as long as that covenant's in force. But that covenant would not be in force now. Because that covenant's not in force. So you have to remember, yeah, the Sabbath is pre-law, but not codified as law. God rested on the seventh day. But it was not codified as law until Sinai. And then the restatement of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament or the New Covenant, that particular one is not restated. So we celebrate, today we celebrate the Resurrection Sunday, not Saturday, which is the Sabbath. Okay, any other questions? Okay. Or comment. Yeah, Just a quick comment. Yeah. Um, one of the descriptions, even after the new covenant, of those who are pursuing sin or rebellious to God is those who practice lawlessness. And and to me that clarifies a lot because the law didn't go away; it was fulfilled. So I, when Jesus fulfilled the law and His righteousness is imputed to us. It is not that the law went away, but the law was fulfilled on our behalf. Exactly. And that's a pretty important, you said it, I'm just saying it yes. kind of from a, a different different perspective that those that practice sin are practicing lawlessness. Yes. We don't practice lawlessness just because we're no longer bound by the law. Yeah, sin is lawlessness. The definition of sin. Sin is lawlessness. So I'm going to try and not confuse people here, but I'm going to say this because I think it's important. And again, this goes back to why I spent two weeks on uh, dispensational thought and covenantal thought and the literal, historical, grammatical approach to Scripture. The reason is, is because many covenantalists consider Sunday to be the new Sabbath. So if you Look at scripture through, we talked about how you look at scripture through a lens. We all look at scripture through a preconceived lens that we got from somewhere. It may be how the, the church taught where we were raised. Uh, could be something that we studied and come to on our own. But we all look and interpret scripture through a particular lens. And so there are some Christians today who believe that Sunday is the new covenant Sabbath. Okay. As historical, literal, grammatical interpreters, we think the Sabbath is still Saturday or the Old Covenant, and Sunday is not the Sabbath, but it is Sunday, the resurrection day of Jesus Christ that we celebrate, and that we're no longer bound to the Sabbath because that is a Mosaic Covenant, which is obsolete and has passed away. But if you view lens through a the scripture through that other source, they consider Sunday to be the new Sabbath, just like they consider church to be the new Israel. So you, you're, you're going to run into this. You're just going to run into it's out there. So you need to know 
It's how you interpret Scripture. It's how you look through the grammatical principles of Scripture, whether you take it literally or allegorically. So I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked that too. Before I leave, um, do we got a book of the covenant? Do we have the book? Yeah. In a resource center? Yeah. I have no idea. I doubt it. Whether we do, uh, there's a lot of available. What's that? Yeah, the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) This one here is an excellent one right here. It's really good. Highly recommended. That one right there. The words of the covenant. This is actually just volume one, which is in the Old Testament. Volume two is covenants in the New Testament. How that works out. Okay, any other questions? Or any other thoughts like Rick, you want to rephrase a little bit different? I was just thinking that, that if you go back to what the Jews are doing currently, uh-huh. you say that the temple was destroyed so they can't actually practice their religion right. per se in the regard. The only part that they held on to and still try to do is their Sabbath. Yes. And it's the only thing that they've got that they can hold on to at this point. It's interesting to know. Yeah, Israel is back in the land, as we said last week. And they are preparing for and desiring to build a temple on Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock is at. They're going to get that temple built someday. That's going to be interesting to see how that politically plays out. (laughs) It's going to be... That's going to be incredible. They're, they're presently, if you follow this at all, they're presently have a breeding program to develop a red heifer to be able to offer a proper sacrifice to properly cleanse everything and begin. The new, they're going to establish the old sacrificial system again in Israel. It's amazing. Boy, that's going to be brilliant. That'd be amazing. Yeah. More ways than one. Yeah. Okay, did you have a question, Jeremiah? Or thought. Yeah, sort of. Uh, I'm not sure how to word it, but when in the in the Old Testament, when it says, "Offer this sacrifice, and you'll be forgiven of this sin," can you say that they were able to get forgiveness for specific sins, but not be totally justified? Is there I mean, is there a difference there? Or I just have a hard time with when I read through the Old Testament. Right. Do this, and you're forgiven of this sin. They were forgiven based upon forward faith in Jesus Christ. So that sacrifice that they offered was a shadow or a type of that which was to come. And they believed in that. So they knew that the forgiveness that was in that sacrifice was not in that sacrifice, but that was in the Messiah that was to come. So it was more their heart, not their action? Or I'm, what, basically what I'm saying is could a non-believer commit a sin Commit what? Commit a sin. A non-believer? Yeah. I mean, like an Old Testament non-believer. Right. Commit a sin, take an animal to the temple, sacrifice that animal, and be forgiven of that specific sin, but still not be justified. It seems like that that's kind of what was going on. Uh, I, I would agree with that. Okay. Yes. That kind of goes back to Rick's. Because they were being obedient to the law. And so, yes, I would say... Yeah, that's, no. a, that's a difficult question. I 
I'm not sure about the outer yeah, that stuff gets really, honestly, you'd have to have the mind of God to really know exactly how God was viewing all that. You've got to I mean, be a deeper theologian than I am right now to figure that one out. God made it very clear with the words that that will be atonement and he'll be forgiven. And what did that forgiveness mean? Was that forgiven in the eyes of God, forgiven in the eyes of the community? Because there's something else that has to go on there. If you're giving a sacrifice for a sin that the community is aware of and they're holding you accountable for this, you need to be forgiven in the community too. So God is saying, this is how you'll view it. When he's done, that, that, that one's passed. On to the next sin. Um, but to say, because when we look at the New Testament, it's very clear that there is no, the blood of bulls and goats cannot yeah, look save at that right now. from Well, sin. can't forgive sin. Can't forgive sin. So there's a, there's a dichotomy going there where the New Testament makes it clear that if they were forgiven for that because of that act, it wasn't because of the act, it was because of the faith it expressed. When I'd say the psalmist, or psalmist sisters, Psalmists, yes, plural, testify to that as well. I mean, they, 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 they speak to the joy of of the law and uh, the freedom they have in God via Christ. I mean, so they're. I think that's the other side. The Old Testament saints definitely experience forgiveness. There is no ifs and buts about it. But. If he's a non-believer, he wouldn't be convicted of sin. He would not even accept the fact that he was a sinner. So wouldn't he simply be well, there, conducting there. a sacrifice as just something to do to appease the people around him? Not necessarily because the vast majority of Old Testament Israel were unbelievers. The vast majority of Old Testament Israel was unbelievers. Yet they were offering sacrifices faithfully. Was it because they didn't understand, though? No, I don't think it was because. Was, no. no. It wasn't was understanding. Time? It was rejection. Total rejection. Well, I understand also that concept of faith and belief is not something that comes from within us. It is something that is always. Too. Always. So, yeah, if you're saying that they were a believer, that is, that con the connotation is, is that God has put that faith into them that is then outwardly expressed. I think it comes back to this, Jeremiah. Justification is by faith. So in the Old Testament system, when Israel had offered a sacrifice, if they'd done it by faith, I think they experienced forgiveness. Because you're justified by faith. If, they, if it was in faith, if it was in a sacrifice, though if they'd done it by faith, they experienced forgiveness. A lot of the sacrifices that were offered were not done in faith. Abraham and Isaac. What's that? I say Abraham and Isaac with the idea that Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac and he had faith believing that, that you know, God had a plan in, in what he was having him do. That, yeah, you know, the New he Testament wasn't said actually... that Abraham actually believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. It's incredible. He offered Isaac. He was getting ready to offer Isaac because he believed God would raise him from the dead. That's an amazing thing. That's stunning. So God provided a substitute. Yeah, yeah. Which was a pre-test, a pre, 
the shadow, the shadow of Christ. Yeah. I just know this, Jeremiah. The blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sin. And we're justified by faith alone. So for an Old Testament saint to be forgiven, it had to be by faith. Sacrifice was actually a shadow or a type of that which was to come. And they were looking for a Messiah. Even though they didn't have the revelation we have, they knew a Messiah was coming. And they knew that that represented that. So their faith was in that which was to come. And we know that they experienced forgiveness because as Joe said, it's obvious in Psalms. I, I don't, Very I obvious. I still don't understand how if you're a non-believer that you would have faith. How oh, you would? <laughs> so that, uh, you know, it talks about at the crucifixion, you know, that when the, you know, when they went to the, the cave and stuff, Mary and them, mm-hmm. and Jesus wasn't there, that there were a lot of people, even some of the disciples, that you know, didn't understand up. They they kind of understood, but they didn't really understand up until that point. Right. You know what? What had taken place, and what? Je- you know that Jesus was there. The savior, the sacrifice that was given for. Yeah. Am I right or wrong? I think. I yeah, they they that. didn't they did not understand until the resurrection. Yeah. Road to Emmaus. Huh? Yeah. Road to Emmaus. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. Even Thomas. Yeah. And they said, we've seen the Lord. He said, I won't believe that until I put my hand in his side and my finger in his nail prints. Yeah. No, they didn't get it. When he said, let's destroy this temple and in three days it will rise again, they didn't get it. Amazing, after three years, they still didn't get it. Yeah. Okay, it's after 10. We're going to cut her off for today. If you got any Thank questions, you, let me know. Thank you.